Here we go with another edition of Why Wasn't It Better. I am your host, Patrick Darms. And I'm your co-host, Anton Paras. And we are joined today by another first-time guest, Paul Kind. Welcome. Welcome, Paul. Thank you very much. Great to be on the podcast, and thanks for the invite. Of I course, think I'm of your course. F- Am I your first foreign guest? You are indeed. Yes. Yeah. The listeners can't tell Paul is joining us from, from London. From, uh, yep. Lovely London. Okay. Well, obviously, you and you, you and I, we've known each other a long time, and both of us are great lovers of films. Uh, when I heard you starting this podcast and started listening to it, I thought, you've really tapped into something really, really interesting. You know, you see these films, and it's like, just why wasn't this good? What is it that I was hoping for that this film didn't sort of give to me? And then other films, I've sat in and with no expectation of absolutely blown me away. And it's kind of unpicking those things. And with, with the stuff that you guys have already done, there are films I've actually gone back to just to see uh, what you guys have picked up on. And especially like Pirates of the Caribbean series, I kind of watched them one after the other. And, and I sort of then heard, read, listened to the podcast again. I thought, yeah, I kind of totally agree with virtually everything you're saying about that last film. So it's, um, and then sort of fast forward, we started talking and then you mentioned about possibilities of doing Alien 3. And I just felt like this is a time to face one of my traumatic moments of my film life (laughs) and to revisit that film after 20 odd years. So it's, I'm hoping it's going to be cathartic, if nothing else. (laughs) Excellent. Very well said. So you stayed away from this film for 20 years. I can't tell you how much I've hated this film. (laughs) <laughs> I, wow that is, I, I think that's the strongest reaction we've ever had from a guest uh, regarding a film yeah, yeah maybe maybe yeah maybe, maybe hate's such a strong word maybe i disappointment oh i hate this it, movie oh okay among monks yeah. friends then it's <laughs> oh, um, yeah, it's it's okay to hate this film yeah it's okay yeah i mean you could i mean just to give you i guess some context of this particular one which might be helpful is so when Alien first came out back in 1979, you guys probably weren't even born then, um, but I was a young 14-year-old. So me and a few mates, we had to sneak into an old flea pit movie theater, pretending to be 18-year-olds because it was an X, I think it was an X-rated film. And the hype around Alien at the time was just amazing. It was like a fantastic, scary horror film, some really badass alien, some amazing tension. And so we had to go and see it. And right from the beginning of the film, the title sequence, the music, the slow ticking and a ratcheting of the tension and the introduction of the character, I was just blown away. I just fell in love with that film. I couldn't get enough of it. I bought the posters, the books, everything I could get hold of. So fast forward, then we go to then James Cameron was then brought on board to do Aliens. And I was thinking, this is going to be good. He's done Terminator. What could, you know, this is going to be great. And again, the height was fantastic and just went to the biggest screen I could find. And again, fantastic openings, build-up, story, the cast, everything was just just awesome. And it just took the story one step further, which is what you're really looking for in a, in a sequel. So then it was like announced that, you know, Alien 3 was going to happen. So I'm thinking, right, okay, this is, this is going to be good. You know, what, what are they going to do with this? Surely... You know, they've taken it from the planet to the spacecraft. Surely it's going to end up on the Earth. And so a lot of build up to that. And by that point, you know, I was 
I was, I think, oh, yeah, I've been going, started going. My wife was a big fan of the Alien franchise as well, so we were really excited to see it. And then we went to see it, and the rest is just trauma. And uh, that's what yeah. brings us here, ultimately. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and uh, yeah, a few, few sessions with my phys- uh, phys- uh, psychiatrist. I think I'm over it now. Well, I am glad to hear that. <laughs> Thank you. I don't think I could have introed the setup for Alien 3 any better. Agreed. I mean, for you guys, I guess... So would you guys have been watching this on what would have been DVD by that point? Were you young, young whippersnappers? Well, I, I can, I can, um, from my perspective, I actually, the first time I saw this film was actually on TV on TNT. So my, the version I saw was even censored for television, but at least from a story perspective, I was like, this is terrible. Um, but then watching the, yeah, the version on DVD, I was like, this is still terrible. Nothing would improve it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, think- I, I saw them all in order when I was pretty young. And I do remember distinctly thinking before watching this one that I was like, well, how is there another one if the second movie, they they nuked the, the planet with all the aliens on it and she ejects the queen out of the airlock? I'm like, seems like all the aliens are dead. Yeah, and I and I think, as I say, I think the obvious conclusion was surely they've they've got to put the alien in a huge population, which can only really point to something like Earth or right. something a planet similar to that sort of scale. Is the only real place you could take the story, or unless you discontinue with that story thread and you go and take it somewhere completely different. It's funny you say that because in one of the teaser trailers. The narrator says, on Earth, everyone can hear you scream. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Remember that. But I also read that that was a marketing error, wasn't it? They were trying to imply that basically you'll be watching it on Earth. Yeah. It, it's not the official tagline of the movie. But you compare, interestingly, if you compare that trailer for Alien 3 to the first one and the second one, the tension in the first two trailers of Alien and Aliens I just, again, really fantastic way to portray the film without giving too much away. The third one, I just felt like it was just playing on the fact that they had secured the rights to have Sigourney Weaver in it, and there was an alien in it, and that was pretty much it. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty accurate. Alien 3. Ellen Ripley is the only survivor when she crash lands on Fiorina 161, a bleak wasteland inhabited by former inmates of the planet's maximum security prison. Once again, Ripley must must face both skepticism and the alien as it hunts down the prisoners. Without weapons or modern technology of any kind, Ripley leads the men into battle against the terrifying creature. Alien 3 was released on May 22, 1992 by Brandywine Productions and 20th Century Fox, directed by David Fincher in his very first directorial effort. Screenplay by David Geiler, Walter Hill, and Larry Ferguson with an additional story credit for Vincent Ward, starring Sigourney Weaver, Charles S. Dutton, Charles Dance, Ralph Brown, Brian Glover, and Lance Henriksen. A budget of $65 million, that is $139 million adjusted for inflation, and a box office return of $159 million, that is $340 million adjusted for inflation. So as far as why this movie was chosen, Paul, you already did an outstanding job of explaining why. I mean, this is kind of a no-brainer for the criteria of why wasn't it better. The, the Alien series is 
I don't know if I can call it one of the best film series ever because I don't think that's accurate based on just percentage points. It has quite the fan base. It does have, it has a really dedicated, resolute fan base. And it is a very interesting film series to study. There's a lot of genius directors that have worked on this series. A lot of really famous actors have been involved in this series. And some of the most iconic imagery from movies in general can be traced back to this series. One of the things I would add is based on really the alien film, also to remember back then, there was no female action heroes. This was the first real badass female action hero to actually be at the very end, the one that kills the final baddie, succeeds. In Aliens, she led it. She was the brains. She had courage. But there was also, you know, with the child and working with Hicks and all those good things. So it was a, a game changer. And certainly with the alien creature, to me, it was the first alien I'd ever seen that could possibly pass off as an alien. Everything else had just been man in a rubber suit, which essentially is what the alien creature is. But it looked fantastic. And I, and I think a lot of people who'd seen that for the first time had gone, wow, I could actually believe that. That is a badass alien lethal and you know with the mouth and every, the way it looked there'd been nothing like that and i think that helped to drive the enthusiasm and the culture around the whole alien franchise really excellent points i think piggybacking off that too the fact that that sigourney weaver actually got nominated for an academy award for the second film really meant that like that like that type of genre is not something that the awards had ever really taken seriously. And the fact that she, she she didn't win it, but the fact that she was nominated for it was just a huge game changer. Yeah. So Alien 3, it's one of the most infamous sequels of all time. The first two Alien films are widely considered two of the greatest films ever made. You know, we don't don't really need to repeat that anymore. You know, one of the great debates at cocktail parties is, of course, which of the two is better. I think they complement each other perfectly. I don't really know that I could pick a favorite, which I realize is kind of a cop out, but um, I just I I just stand by that. I think they're both perfect movies. There's nothing I would really change about either one of them. So you're telling me you like Aliens more? I don't know. I mean, it's tough because I have leaned that way in the past, but then I've also leaned toward Alien before. I don't want I one to exist without the other. Do you think they're two very different types of films, which makes it harder? I think. Yes, that's I think the best thing about the sequels. To your point. It moved the story to another level. So then where does Alien 3 fit in? Well, doing the research for this, I was actually surprised at how many defenders of this film there are. I always just assumed most people thought it was bad, but it, there really are people online, especially on um, the uh, Alien subreddit, that, that really feel strongly about defending this movie's honor. Well, I don't respect their opinions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't want to um, step on everything I want to say. I will say this. This is a bit of a disclaimer. If you are one of the people that think this is a better film than Aliens, you're, you're going to want to shut this podcast off right now because you're not going to like what any of us have to say. Fair. That's a great That's a great warning. Great disclaimer. Three times the suspense, three times the danger, three times the terror. That's the tagline <laughs> of this film. It's on the poster. Ugh. Also, the way they stylize the three, what's up with that? Like, why? I really wanted to intro it as Alien Cubed, but I was like, maybe that's too <laughs> obvious. Well, it is but three you, times uh, the excitement, right? Uh, 
Yeah, I just you're right though, Anton. It's like it's just one more thing I don't like about it. Like, why is it stylized like that? Why? Like, it literally has nothing to do with the story, just at all. It's just stylized, weird. Anything else we want to say before we get into the production history? I, c- I can wait. <laughs> <laughs> we, I mean, there's a, there's a lot to dig into. Um, Paul's like, I have been waiting for this for twenty years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is a lot. There is a lot. Let's just dive right in then. So immediately after Aliens was released in 1986, producers David Geiler, Walter Hill, and Gordon Carroll began discussing a third film. They were interested in exploring the duplicity of the Wayland yutani Corporation, specifically why they were so intent on using the aliens as biological weapons. That actually does sound interesting. They originally envisioned a two-part film. Corporal Hicks, played by Michael Bean, was intended to be the protagonist, while Ripley would appear in the fourth film. Quick shout out to Walter Hill, who directed movies like The Warriors and 48 Hours. Now, Fox, 20th Century Fox, they tried to get Ridley Scott to return, but he declined, disliking the story ideas. He said that he was more interested in exploring the origin of the xenomorphs, and this would later resurface with Prometheus in 2012. So by September 1987, famous science fiction author William Gibson was hired to write a script. Shout out to William Gibson, one of my all-time favorite authors. And the screenplay that he wrote was very action-oriented, featuring an extended cast, and it's considered in some circles as superior to the final film. Wouldn't be hard. And it has a considerable following on the internet. Now, Gibson was the first of 10 writers that ended up working on this film, and they were rumored to be at least six different scripts floating around at one point. At the time Gibson was working on his script, Fox approached Rennie Harlan about directing the film. After a bit of back and forth, Harlan removed himself from consideration, and he cited the same story concerns that Ridley Scott had expressed previously. Harlan would go on to direct the highly successful films Die Hard 2 and Cliffhanger, as well as Cutthroat Island, which was not successful at all. Gibson's script would eventually be adapted into a comic book in 2018. Anton, are you aware of this? And if so, have you read it? I haven't read the comic. Uh, I know there is quite an extensive alien uh, comic universe, but no, I haven't read this particular one. Sounds pretty interesting. So for for the research for this podcast, I actually downloaded it from Prime. And it's quite an interesting story between sort of like this kind of a Cold War theme, but Ripley's not really in it. Hicks comes into it later on. but a lot of it is more about what happens on this U.S. space station and this Russian space station. So these kind of parallel storylines. It's quite interesting. It really sounds like a cool idea. Now, David Toohey, who is uh, probably best known for um, the Chronicles of Riddick films, he had a script that featured a prison planet. Now, when he found out Fox was exploring other scripts, he stopped working on his and was no longer involved. Now, it was around this time that producers David Geiler and Walter Hill saw the film The Navigator, a medieval odyssey, directed by Vincent Ward. No idea what that movie is. They liked this film so much that they asked Ward to not only develop a story for Alien 3, but also to direct it. Now, Vincent Ward's concept featured a wooden planet concept. So the idea was this wooden planet with uh, Luddite-like monks who rejected all forms of modern technology. And obviously elements of this would be incorporated into the final film. 
the main plot of the finished film still follows Ward still follows Ward's basic structure, and it, and it is for this reason that he received an official screenwriting credit. Ward's ideas for the film were well liked by the producers and by Sigourney Weaver as well. Once she committed to the role and agreed to a salary of five and a half million, pre-production on Alien Three began in 1990. Ward hired production designer Norman Reynolds, who had famously worked on the Star Wars trilogy and Indiana Jones, to build the massive sets. And we are going to continue talking about the rest of the production history actually in our reasons, very similar to Superman 2. So gentlemen, it's time to talk about why wasn't it better? Yeah, and you revealed reason one. Let's continue to talk about this production. I mean, even up to this point, that is a lot tied to <laughs> the even just the, the story itself. Couldn't really find I couldn't really find one that sticks, huh? No, they really they really cobbled a bunch of stuff together, didn't they? Which you you would think like okay, studio is going to spend what was it about fifty million dollars on something? More. That's a more. You would think they would take the time to actually settle on something, but I suppose Hollywood's littered with films that get start shooting without an end script, so. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised, but I, but I, I heard a phrase the other day about another series, and they called it a franchise filler. And I thought this is quite apt for this film. It, it really was like we just need to get something out, and we're getting to the point when it's you know six years. Is it about six years since the previous one? So yeah. let's just get something out. We've got the basic ingredients, so let's just bake a cake. We don't really care what a cake looks like, tastes like, or anything, but it's a cake, and we can sell it. Yeah, sounds like a studio. I mean, Ward really, I mean, Ward's original um, story, I think that's what really interested me the most. That and uh, uh, Space Monks dedicated to rejecting modernity. Um, but Vincent Ward, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's interesting to think what the film could have been like with that original story. But even then, there was a lot that blocked that story from coming through. Yeah, he, I mean, Ward, he hired this guy, John Fasano, to fully flesh out his story idea into a complete screenplay, which again seems weird to me. It's like into a complete screenplay. He didn't have one. They hired him and he didn't have a complete screenplay. That seems crazy right off the bat. And then some people at Fox liked the story, but others did not. Most notably, um, most of the production crew and a studio executive. Uh, John Landau was one of them. He is a um, he would later win an Oscar for co-producing Titanic. He was very much a skeptic of this, and logistically, the idea of maintaining that wooden planet was proving difficult when it came to building the sets. And it actually it got to the point that the studio called a meeting with Ward, demanding a list of changes to be made. He refused, and they fired him. Meanwhile, they're already building sets, so. The producers, Hill and David, they worked on their own screenplay, and it was ultimately used in the final film. And they hired this guy, Larry Ferguson, to assist. They incorporated elements from all of the other scripts into theirs. It's a real hodgepodge. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly, it's just cobbled together. Now, but Sigourney Weaver, she disliked Ferguson's contributions to the screenplay. She stated that it made Ripley sound like a, quote, pissed off gym teacher, end quote. Kind of funny. It yeah, was around this time. <laughs> that Fox asked music video director David Fincher to replace Ward. Fincher would end up doing his own work on the screenplay, and he hired yet another writer named Rex Pickett to assist them. And Pickett was also fired. So by, 
By the time filming finally began in January 1991 at Pinewood Studios, shout out to Pinewood, there still wasn't a finished script. And by this point, they had spent $7 million already constructing sets. If I've ever seen a good, just consistent theme across films that don't do well or could have been better, it's that when there are when there is no clear vision, then everything else really does fall apart. Because what's leading then right the set direction? What's leading the the um, photography? What's leading just the actor's vision of how the characters should be portrayed without a clear vision and clear story? then really what is there to move off of? And we've seen that with other films too. I think it's a great point, Anton, because I think if you look at, say, like Ridley Scott or James Cameron, could you imagine them starting something without a script or having not a clear vision? No, no way. And that's how they create these universes. The themes of each of these films is very clear. And they are extremely pig-headed about what they, their visions are and they will stick to it no matter what, from what I hear. No, it's true, but you made the point earlier, Paul, that like um, f- starting filming without a script, it is more common than you'd think. I'm going to point this out at least once during this podcast. This had the same budget as Jurassic Park, which was released a year later. Just think about that. Wow. It's wild wow. to me. Like, I, I, same I might budget. Been, I might be doing too much like home improvement, but like it sounds like the screenplay was like you took a bunch of paint and put it into a paint mixer and then that color is what they ended up putting out for the film. There's another would, filmmaker that you know would never start filming without a completed script. Spielberg, like he's not going near that. Now, again, no this uh-huh. is not, by the way, none of this is going to be Fincher's fault, right? No, no. Because we all love David Fincher here. One of the most consistently brilliant filmmakers of all time. This is probably really the only stinker he's ever been associated with, and it's not his fault. When it comes to the rest of the crew, um, so a couple weeks into filming uh, Jordan Cronenweth, the director of photography, he fell ill with Parkinson's disease and he had to be replaced by a gentleman named Alex Thompson. Now, Stan Winston, who had worked on the creature effects for the second film, he was unavailable to return. I believe he was working on none other than Jurassic Park at the time. He recommended Tom Woodruff Jr. and Alec Gillis, two former members of his studio who had just started their own company, Amalgamated Dynamics. These two guys would end up working on the alien effects for not only this film, but the next several in the franchise. Now, Fincher really wanted to hire the original designer of the alien, H.R. Giger, to work on the design for the alien here. Um, But the only one of Giger's designs that actually wound up in the final project was a Bambi Burster alien that had long legs and walked on all fours. Giger uh, would end up being rather critical of this film. If there's any listeners that haven't looked up the original art that was developed um, that inspired the alien design, look it up. It is pretty gorgeous. It is. And it is. It comes from quite a mind. I'll tell you that. (laughs) Have you ever heard him interviewed? No. (laughs) He has the most outrageous voice. I think he's from Switzerland. (laughs) But it sound, it's like this sing-song accent that he's got going on. Anyway, yeah, check, check out an H.R. Giger interview on YouTube. It's entertaining. So we're still in the production history of this being one of the reasons why this wasn't better. Uh, something I want to point out about this, back to Fincher real quick. He did direct this movie, but I, I'm kind of of the belief that this really should not be considered a Fincher movie. He had zero creative control. He was constantly undermined by the producers, and he ended up walking off the set after shooting wrapped. He had nothing to do with the movie's post-production, and he has infamously disowned this movie. 
So it's like barely a Fincher movie in name only. And I've read online that part of even including or even even tagging Fincher to direct the film was the studio had clear intentions of what they wanted to do with the film. And uh, they figured a new director like Fincher wouldn't push back. But we've learned, of course, that Fincher also has very clear intentions and is very intentional with his filming. So that did not go the studio's way. Definitely not. The filming of this movie was the definition of chaotic. The script was constantly being rewritten with new versions sometimes popping up almost daily. The cast and the crew, according to reports, they would often film a scene only to learn the next day that it had already been scrapped. There's a lot of footage just sitting around on the, on the cutting room floor here. Now Fox, I mentioned how they undermined Fincher. They really didn't give him any control, and they went, they went so far. They actually fired and rehired him several times, and at one point, they shut down for almost three months while the script was undergoing rewrites. So again, you can just see the cost of this film mounting, and that's how we get to sixty-five million. And I, and I guess as, as actors and production staff, you're thinking, what is going on? Or, or has this? As you say, has this got a clear vision? Is this actually ever going to get finished? And you can, you know, you can more sense it in the in the way that they're acting. It doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't seem like they were that bothered. No, and they didn't just go through that scenario once. They went through it several times. And after a very lengthy shoot and an editing process, the studio rejected Fincher's final version, and they because they wanted a shorter film, and that actually required extensive reshoots. This was the last straw for Fincher, and he walked away for good after this. And, of course, Fincher would disown the film later, and he stated it in an interview with The Guardian. He said, quote, I had to work on it for two years, I got fired off it three times, and I had to fight for every single thing. No one hated it more than me, and to this day, no one hates it more than me, end quote. So he was hired several times, rehired several times, and quit, and then came back at least once. But he ended up not being involved in the final cut at all. His initial rough cut later became the basis for what's known as the assembly cut. It's a longer edition of this movie that was released on on, um, the DVD quadrilogy collection back in 2003, and then again on the Blu-ray release in 2010. It is important to make the distinction. It is not a director's cut. It was done without Fincher's permission. They asked him to work on this thing that ended up being called the assembly cut, but he declined. Have either of you seen this version? I have not. That is brutal. Yeah, I feel I feel for the guy. I really do. I'm curious, Pat. Do you know what they reshot? They definitely reshot those... the ending. Okay, I was curious if that yeah. was. Uh, I I I, w- I was really curious if that was intentional on the studio's decision to follow through with that particular ending. Yeah, the the ending in the assembly cut. She she kills herself in a very similar way by by throwing herself into the furnace, but the chest burster doesn't come out of her. And that was the last straw for Fincher. He's like, "This is stupid." I, I, I mean, I guess. I, I mean, it, it seems like most of the stuff they reshot were in the final act. Like, Paul, have you seen the assembly cut? I I haven't no, but I'm kind of you pricked my interest to try try and find that version just to see if it actually improves on. What we've seen as a theatrical release. I, I think it it was certainly I think better than the theatrical release, but it's still pretty raw. It's it's significantly longer. It's like twenty or thirty minutes longer. And there's some weird stuff in it. Like it was it was clear that some of the stuff that they added had unfinished special effects, so they inserted some like 
modern day, and I'm talking 2003 modern day, they inserted some um, 2003 CGI in it to like touch things up. So it, it's still quite rough. And in my mind, it's not enough of an improvement where I would like go out of my way to ever watch it. But if you've never seen it, it's, it's an interesting like behind the scenes look. I'm I'm reading a few things now, um, just like a, a few things that were changed between the theatrical cut and the assembly cut. One thing, the assembly cut explains why Ripley's head is shaved. Two, the the alien bursts out of an ox versus a dog. Yes. In the in the theatrical cut, um, there's more explanation or there's more background for the different prisoners that explain their different temperaments a bit more or at least there there's also more background involved so you better understand um what they're doing throughout the film but yes the the ending that's a pretty that's a significant one with with the chest burster yeah yeah paul definitely i definitely recommend checking it out because you know you um hold this movie in such high esteem you want to relive my trauma for an extra hour <laughs> i i'm i'm quite envious of you because you got to see the first two in the theaters, but I'm not envious of like what you went through with this. Someone had to watch it, right? Yeah, somebody did. It did a lot better in Europe. It was a pretty big failure in North America, but um, European audiences, for whatever reason, liked it better. I think probably also what saved it is it was in the time before social media. So, you know, most reviews and things like that came from either the magazines like Empire or through newspapers. So. Right. Because we always lag behind because all the films that were shown in the States, they were reused in theatres in the UK and in Europe. So we always had like a two or three month lag. So I think if the social media had been around then, I don't think it would have been as popular. Now, what I, I did read, you know, along those same lines where this was released at a time where there was better sources of communication streams for folks to be able to e- actually even share their displeasure with the film. So compared to the first two, um, negative reception was more easily like shared in the world at the time. So even then, critical reception was still like universally more negative. Yeah, and I have to say, when I went to see it, I did, I did know that there was there was problems with the production. There was a lot of rewrites. There was rumors of this wooden planet. But I kind of pushed that to the back of my mind because I really wanted to enjoy this film. And so, yeah, I just just said, right, forget all that. This is going to be good. Walter Hill's on it. You know, there's a lot of people that were associated with the, some of the original film. This is still going to be good. And uh, alas. Yeah. No, it just, uh, well, just was nuts. It all makes sense in retrospect, though, especially with a lot of the other stuff Fincher said. In in that same Guardian interview, um, he mentioned how the studio did not seem particularly concerned with quality as long as the movie was released and made money. Paul, that makes dovetails nicely with what you said earlier, like just just get something out. Fincher also commented that his inexperience made things far worse as the studio had no reason to listen to him on anything. Again, with the quality thing, it's like, why hire a director if you're not going to give them any kind of creative control? What's the what's the point? Well, just that, though, isn't it, Patrick? It's just you don't want them to have control. You want to control them. It's his first, it's his first feature, so he's going to 
do what you tell him to do, I assume. I I wonder if that was a reaction to Cameron on the on the second film cuz um listening to Cameron's director's commentary for Aliens is really interesting. He had a lot of issues with um the English crew and the producers while he was working yep. on that film. I wonder if if in the backs of their minds they were like we gave Cameron way too much control on the second one. We're never going to let this happen again. So what's really interesting there is, uh, you know, I, I'd mentioned earlier before the recording, I was watching uh, movies that made us and they talked about that in the episode, how the, how Cameron really uh, just rubbed them the wrong way, the English crew. And then en- enough so that um, when he'd fired someone from the set that they all trusted it immediately halted production and lo and behold, it was Sigourney Weaver who was the mediator that actually allowed production to, uh, to, um, commence again. And then actually, um, James Cameron apologized to the crew openly and very, uh, in a very vulnerable way. And that actually just allowed things to move very smoothly. Now I wanted to talk about that because like something I wanted to post to you two is, do you feel like this, Doing this film was a, a shows it was a cash grab for Sigourney. Yeah, but I don't hold it against her. Now, now four was for sure a cash grab. Oh, okay. like four, it was like <laughs> Hell okay, yeah. like get you, you need money. I, I we get it. She's like, what, three, what is it? You, you're uh, saying it's a clone? <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> oh, by the way, Anthony, I mean, a quick anecdote. That was the last time in uh, James Cameron's career where he ever apologized to anyone. Oh, fair enough. I'm I'm just assuming that. Yeah, no, I I I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. I think after Terminator Two, he's like, I am never apologizing to anyone again. I do everything right. Yeah. <laughs> I I suppose it's it's who can blame anyone if someone shoves five million in sure, front of, of you course for for what five months work. You think, all right, I'll do it. And look, yeah, she, think- this may have been a cash grab, but she puts in a good performance. Right. No, I don't don't want to take that away from her. She did do like her performance was definitely a shining point or a shining spot in the film. But even just to sign off on like we've seen examples where actors have been like putting their foot down. I'm not doing that or that makes no sense or just not involving themselves with projects that they feel is like beneath them. So just just curious to see here. Like, I'm just, yeah, just something to see here. Yeah. Um, you know, wrapping up the production being very troubled. So the, the film also had problems with negative reactions from test audiences who saw the rough cut. And they ended up having to uh, heavily edit things to avoid an NC-17 rating here. Or I guess that would be X in Britain. So sounds pretty gross. But uh, that brings us to our second reason why this wasn't better, which was the storytelling. And I really like this quote that I found from Sigourney Weaver. Quote, I felt that Ripley was going to become a burden to the story. There are only so many aspects of that character that you can do. End quote. Think about this statement for a second. It makes a lot of sense. Ripley did not have to be involved in this story. Her, her story really is completed in the second film. They could have continued the alien, alien story elsewhere, anywhere. And instead... They bring her back 
And I think they really pigeonholed themselves by doing so. Yeah, no, yeah. I agree with you. Yeah, I think um, there's lots of opportunities you could create new story threads about trying to find these uh, biological weapons that didn't need to involve these these characters. And, you know, let's face it, they essentially almost did that to a certain point by removing two of the characters. Yeah, they sure I, did. You know, so I, I, I've read a bit of the Aliens Extended universe through the comics, and something that I really enjoy about the comics is it's exploring the allegory of, like, what the aliens represent and then how people interact and really what that represents in the individual stories, whether that's they're a metaphor for like weapons of mass destruction or nuclear arsenal or um, what have you. And it always very interesting, but I totally agree. You really pigeonhole yourself if you just focus on one character and what kind of story that could tell. And of course, we can't talk about this movie without mentioning the primary reason why a lot of people dislike this movie. It's the main reason why I dislike this movie is Alien 3 has a bullshit story. Objectively speaking, there is no reason for this film's plot to exist. Aliens had a definitive ending. There is no logical excuse or reason for this movie's plot to exist because there is no explanation for how those eggs got on the Sulaco. Bishop didn't put them there. The Queen didn't put them there either. But because they needed to, right? It, the... It, it they did or somehow the eggs did get on the ship it honestly is one of the worst plot holes i've ever seen in a movie they're like we'll just put some eggs on the ship out of thin air now i mean look i don't i don't necessarily feel like you can't continue the story past aliens obviously they're going to try there's an extended comic universe the aliens are still out there but i agree with you like it's just very lazily put in there like how they continued the film in Aliens 3. But with that, it's just disappointing because I, you, you know me, like, and listeners probably know this aspect um, from my perspective as well, is I'm all about trying to find subversion or trying to find nuance in themes. And while there's a lot of love for how the first two films like what the first two films were able the store, the stories that the first two films were able to tell and the themes that they were able to tell. I feel like you can still continue the story, move in a very different direction in three and it still be very meaningful, but the studio made it very clear. They didn't want to tell a meaningful story. They just wanted to make money. I think they were very much focused on bringing Sigourney Weaver back at all costs. So I think that's, one of the things that really uh, screwed this story. I mean, part of me, Paul, I'll let you talk, speak on this in, in a second because I know you have thoughts, but it's like part of me, I want to respect the audacity to kill off Hicks and Newt in such a frivolous manner. Like it, it, it's, it's definitely bold on their part, but I am of the belief, and this is not just for Alien, but just movies in general. If you're going to get rid of major characters from a previous film, you better have a good reason for doing so. Alien 3 did not have a good enough reason. They never justified doing this. Yeah, uh, I think, you know, it is a difficult challenge if you are going to remove those characters. But I think when you've put your audience through 
aliens where you're rooting for Ripley, Hicks and Newt, right? And they survive. They make it all the way on to the drop, sh- to, to the Solarco. They're in hypersleep. And then all of a sudden you're telling your audience that are, you know, riding on the back of that film to say, actually, that didn't really matter because they're dead now. So all that excitement that you had there, psh, we're just throwing it away. It reminds me of the when Luke Skywalker throws the lightsaber in, I think, the second new Star Wars film. It's it's just like, wow, you just... Didn't even see it. Cha- uh, I, I don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, there's better ways to use your time. But, you, you know, what kind of... To me, I, when I was like looking through my notes, is what audience are you trying to grab here? Because you've got the fan base, the loyal fan base, that are going to come to this film no matter what. And then basically you remove two characters without any thought, any reason. And even even subsequently when you know they do the autopsy and all this kind of stuff, there's not a lot of talk about what actually happened, how, as you say, how they got impregnated, how they got killed. And, you know, even Ripley doesn't even say Newt. I don't, I don't know whether there's like a copyright around that name or something like that, but there's none of that. She went back to to save her from the queen got her on the you know did all the stuff and then all of a sudden she's dead and it didn't seem like i don't know it didn't it didn't ring right to me that there was a lot of sympathy for those two characters just like we need to move the story on now so forget all that move on it alienated a lot of people including james cameron he had some things to say about this he said in an interview with the bbc quote hated it simple as that i hated what they did i couldn't stand alien 3 how they could just go in there and kill off all these great characters we introduced in aliens and the correlation between mother and daughter it stunk end quote he regarded the decision to kill off uh, bishop newt and hicks as a quote fatal mistake and a slap in the face end quote to him and to fans of the previous film He eventually blamed 20th Century Fox for the end result, though, saying that Fincher got handed, quote, a big mess on a plate, end quote. And there's another quote from him that I like. He said, you can only hit the audience in the face with a two by four so many times before they detach emotionally. Very telling quotes. Now, this is, again, like just kind of touch on my earlier point. There's you don't make a decision like killing major characters like that frivolously unless you have a very clear intentional vision of what you're trying to tell or a very clear intentional story that you're trying to tell. Now, one could argue that if the first film was a thriller, the second film was an action film, the third could have been more of an introspective return to horror. And what I love about horror is that it actually allows us to really look at different nuanced aspects of things that make us afraid, make us scared. And one thing that, you know, I read about that really got me thinking a lot was this theme theme of nihilism. And this universe is very, just, it can be very random and horrible things can happen to good people. And when you think about that and what occurs in the beginning of the film, now it's tragic. But then how can you tell a story effectively that shows the reaction of Ripley to be able to navigate life while also trying to deal with an alien menace while trying to also explore and react to her environment? 
I feel like that's a much more interesting film and where you could still have the tragedy that is like Newton Hicks die in the beginning of the film. But because it was just more of a, eh, let's just have this happen, like kind of an afterthought, it's just so much more disrespectful and just so much more just confusing at the end of the day. Do you guys think it would be a, would have been a slightly better start to the film if we hadn't seen that first three or four minutes so that essentially it starts with her being waking up on the planet and then kind of finding out that Hicks and Newt had been killed, but she assumes that it was because of the crash landing that it went on. But then you find out that actually there was an alien and everything else. Because I think that you kind of lose a little bit of, you know, tension there because you've seen it happen. You go, okay, they've been killed by an alien. There's definitely going to be an alien on that that lifeboat. So we know that Ripley survived. So that kind of tension is gone. You lose that 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 opportunity, if you like. It's a really good point. It is it is a bizarre way to open a film. It, like I said, it, it it is bold, but you. Asked this earlier, Paul. Like, who? What audience are you making this for? Yeah, yeah, I really don't know. I mean, I mean, I suppose you guys are probably better placed, you know, in retrospect, because obviously we kind of came with it like, oh, we've seen these two films. Here's the third one. You've kind of had them ready to go. Did you? Did you feel like it was a good move or an unexpected move? And it was like, oh, okay, I get that. No, because you don't necessarily. I, I hated it the second I saw it. Instincts? No, was not a fan. I I think I would have been more forgiving. I'm going to come to this point in a second. A couple points. The characters that they introduce in this film, right? All of the characters are rapists and murderers. They all look the same. They all sound the same. They all die the same. It's it's just how are you supposed to feel any sympathy for these characters? Clemens is the only one where, you know, when he gets killed, you're like, oh, that's a bummer. And, And Dylan. He was a rapist and a murderer, though. Oh, was he? <laughs> yeah, he says this to her. He's like, "I'm a rapist and a murderer of women." It's like, oh, okay. So, like, if you if you die, I'm I'm not going to care. Now, does he have a personality? Yes, much more so than the rest of the prisoners. I, like, and I like that actor, Charles S. Dunn. I think his his performance is good. But if you th- compare that to the crew in the first film, and especially the Marines in the second film, they're all well written. Especially the Marines, mm-hmm. Cameron. It's one of his most underrated scripts. Like even the Marines with minimal lines, they had some semblance of a personality. So that each when each one of them dies, you actually have an idea of actually who they were. Like when they wake up from hypersleep and they're all eating breakfast, in less than 30 seconds of dialogue, Cameron establishes that Hicks is friends with Frost, Hudson is annoying, but everyone seems to still like him. Lieutenant Gorman's an idiot. And you get the similar characterization in the first film, right? They all wake up. They're all eating. You can all you can kind of tell the two engineers are friends with each other. You can tell Dallas is the captain, even by not saying that he's the captain, just because of the dialogue. You don't get any of that here. My point is this. If there were some good new characters, I would have forgiven the deaths of Newton Hicks more. But I don't think that there are any. Because you're right, you're right. Clemens was interesting a little bit, but he gets killed almost immediately. So when at towards the end, right, when the alien is just chasing all these nameless prisoners around, there's no tension because you don't care about them. They're rapists and murderers. That's all you know about them. And none of them are giving any type of a personality except perhaps Dylan. So how are you supposed to care about these characters like you do in the first two films? 
Oh wait, we're missing the the everyone's lovable prison warden. Oh, what was his name? Mr. And not Andrews. It was Andrews. Andrews. Yeah. Yeah. He was just an asshole. He right. wasn't likable. That's my point. There's no one likable in this movie except for Ripley. That pretty much that's it. Well, given that also they tried to rape Ripley, didn't they, in one of the scenes? So it's like, oh right, that's yeah, that's going to make me cheer for them for their survival. There, there, there was no really redeeming characters, and I don't think the film had time to sort of explore, you know, why we should. Because if you think about it, the di- the interesting dynamic is the fact that that they're, they're in a they're sort of essentially trapped in a prison, or they've chosen to stay in a prison. She's now trapped with them, and they're trapped because there's an alien. So they have to join forces, even though they clearly can't be together. It would have been a quite an interesting dynamic, but it's never really explored. And you get a little bit with, you know, Charles Dancer's character, which I thought the chemistry between him and Sigourney, I thought was great. You know, you know, the, you know, the fact that they end up sleeping together and everything else, yeah. I thought could have been quite an exciting thing. But as you say, Pat, it just next minute, it's like got a, you know, he's being skewered. So you kind of lose any sort of sympathy with any of the characters that you meet for the first time. He's the only one you potentially could have gone, okay, I want him to survive the rest. You know, it's like, yeah, okay. There was also just a lot of like, even just logical things, like how many prisoners are actually on the planet that I just couldn't keep track of. No. Um, How big was the place? Things, things like that. Yeah. Is it, it seems like it's a massive facility. That's another thing too. I mean, the, the production design is really good. All the sets look great, but the the geography of it all, I never have any idea where they are in the facility. How far are they from other characters? It's it's not really clear to me at any point. And I've seen this movie a few times. There was the scene where you know the first guy that gets attacked by the alien in the, in the where he gets blended in the in the fan. Right. I oh had, oh yeah yeah those, yeah. And and. It's like I've no idea where he is. Then you get the guys with the uh, the candles. They're running around, and I, and they eventually come back on the guy that was attacked. And I'm like, where are they? Where is? I just like you. I was totally confused. Whereas I felt like in all the other films, even though they were running down corridors, I felt they were going to a different location. A couple plot holes, not necessarily plot holes, but stuff that um, irked me a little bit. So. When when Ripley like uh, briefly revives Bishop, she she doesn't ask him how an alien got there. It feels like that's important. <laughs> like, oh, hey Bishop, um, I'm one hundred percent sure I killed all the aliens on this planet. Can, any any idea how one of how an egg got on the Sulaco? No. The other thing I think uh, maybe you guys can help me help me understand it. Why didn't she tell them? Why does she take so long? You know, she has the autopsy on you and Hicks has them buried, and still doesn't tell them what's going on and waits till, I don't know, until someone's actually kind of been skewered before sort of say, oh, by the way, I think there was some sort of alien on board. Not explained. Not explained. It's very just a, reasonable to ask. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, after all she's been through on all the other films, you think, like, I need weapons. Clemens even, like, presses her. He's like, can you please tell me what's going on? Like, I'm trying to help. And she's like, no. <laughs> it's and bizarre. Then, we get to the third act, which is basically the lead works chase. This was the part where I was confused the most about the geography. Are they running in the same direction, different direction? Which tunnel goes to where? 
Sometimes they appear to be running in circles. I've seen it described as Scooby-Doo like chases. Yeah, I just don't. Again, with the geography, you're like, how far? What's the distance? Is it like a huge area they're running around in? The main thing I had a problem with the third act when you compare it, and I, and I, and I, you know, I keep going back to these. But you look at the finale of Alien and Aliens, right? She had to basically. She was almost on. She was on the rescue, the the shuttle, right? On the first one. All of a sudden, the alien pops up. She has to strap herself in. She's singing that, you are my lucky star thing, right? Huge amount of tension. Finally, blows him away. In the second one, she goes down there and the the other queen's there and she gets into that mechanical uh, device thing. And, you know, she, she utters those immortal lines of, get away from her, you bitch. You've got your audience. It's tension. It's fantastic. It's a massive build-up with a huge payoff. This one, as you say, was a bunch of guys running down some very brown corridors, and eventually, like, he gets stuck in a channel. I mean, there was, it was just devoid of any jeopardy or tension, as far as I could see. A bunch I, of guys, I, I, and I dare you to name more than one of the prisoners. Uh, one was Dopey. Uh, one was... <laughs> Itchy and Scratchy. One was Doc. Um, uh, Clayface. Um, uh, Mumbles. Uh, Pruneface. Oh, no, that's Dick Tracy. Sorry. No, that's uh, I, I will. I, I do want to give one thing, though, um, to the storytelling that I thought was interesting. And I think if they could have doubled down on this aspect and maybe given it a bit more thought, it could have been cool. If you are on a planet without any conventional weapons, it does make how do you it how do you take out an alien a bit more interesting and agree the trying to take out the alien with the molten lead and then the extreme temperature change that was actually seemed like a pretty cool way to take out an alien yes it was some pretty bad cgi but it was yes a pretty cool way to take out an alien yeah i I felt yeah i mean I, i agree with you anton i just felt like that the bit where she kind of reached out and pulled the lever to spray the water should have been like her last almost like i've got to reach that thing no matter what because this right. thing's going to get me it was just like oh you know pull that lever because it's going to spray the water and she just kind of reached out pulled it and alien was toast so i just felt as a piece of storytelling i i think it failed dismally on that right final like an piece. afterthought right yeah it was just like kind of numbers thing and i didn't feel anything you know again going back to should we feel anything for these people yeah you know no not really at least give him a name. But uh, no, a, a, all joking aside, Anton, I do agree with you. The, the concept of that, of having no technology, like that could have been really cool if they had executed it better. Like the, the concept for some of the stuff that they were trying to do was sound. It's just what they ended up doing with it that, that you get the problem. Something else that bothered me about the third act. So the entire buildup of the company arriving on the planet to obtain the alien, I, one of the things I was interested in is why they want the alien. You keep hearing like, oh, they want to use it as a weapon. But like, what does that actually mean? How did they learn about it in the first place? The company comes to this planet to get the alien, and they still don't really explain that. And this is also the third movie in a row where the company is trying to obtain an alien. It's like that worked well the first two times. It's like, but it's getting a little old at this point. And then the editing in general, you know, we, we, we've been talking about the faceless prisoner characters. And this is something that not only happens in the third act, but happens earlier in the film. Entire characters just disappear from the movie. 
Now, the characters all look the same to begin with. They're all English for whatever reason, even though we've conquered space and they could technically be from anywhere. They're just all English. And there's a bunch of them that we've never see die. They just disappear. And the best example of this is the guy, Gallic. He's the prisoner who's Gollum. accused of murder. He's the, he's the guy that Gollum. He's the guy that survives the first attack with the, with the two other guys. They think he killed them and they chain him up and leave him in the infir- infirmary. And he's there when Clemens gets killed. He's never seen again. Now, his fate is actually explained in the assembly cut, but that doesn't have anything to do with the theatrical cut. But I really could not keep track of who was who with all the characters getting killed and just disappearing. I just just wasn't sure who was who. Maybe it's just one of those decisions to kind of to keep the pace going and cut the running time down that something had to give if you got so many of those characters to kill off. How many characters? You asked it earlier. You're like, how many prisoners are there? I think they may say it at one point, but I I couldn't tell you. Quick point about the um, the novelization that I own. Um, it's written by a guy named Alan Dean Foster, who's written a lot of this stuff. He disliked the script so much that he did everything he could to make significant changes to it, but the producers blocked him for obvious reasons. The most notable change he wanted to make was keeping Newt alive, and he actually hated the final film so much that he turned down the offer offer to write the novelization for Alien Resurrection. Ouch. Uh, gentlemen, anything to add about the storytelling before we move on to the uh, third and final reason why this wasn't better? Uh, just maybe it would have made more sense in Resurrection because that was a clone Ripley with super strength. But if you are put on a, if you're telling me you're on a prison planet and you have no conventional weapons. I would have liked to have seen fisticuffs between Ripley and the alien um, in the middle of the ring, 1v1, just like put boxing gloves on each one. And let's Dylan have that tries. ending. Let's have that ending. Dylan tries. He, he tries to fight, fight the alien in that lead works thing. It did not work. No. <laughs> Anton, are you thinking like Elon Musk, uh, Zuckerberg kind of? kickboxing yeah just like that put them in the octagon let let them have at it <laughs> see see who wins and then be surprised when ripley has a strong left hook and just knocks the alien out uh apparently that fight's not happening now i don't know I mean, that's a shame here's a question for both of you when when you kind of discover that she has been impregnated with the alien by the fact you know that ultimately she's going to now die does that take something away from you rooting for her? Because at the ultimately, she's going to die, right? That thing's got to come out. So just the way that the story is told, do you think that takes something away? I think I'd argue that it actually adds to the tension and it makes it even more, okay, how are they going to get out of this? But the way that they end up telling the story is it just in a very stupid way. So it wasn't interesting at all. But I think it could have been used as a really interesting, like, how do you Houdini yourself out of a situation like that? I agree. It it could have been a better concept, but uh, I don't like really anything they did with it. All right. Reason number three, the production and the effects. Pretty impressive to me that somehow this film looks worse than its predecessors, which came out in 1979 and 1986, respectively. Yeah, especially when you think about, well, you've mentioned the budget many times and same as jurassic when i think when i think about that i'm like this movie looks terrible considering that oh you were you a fan you weren't a fan of the uh the poop brown color palette (laughs) 
throughout the whole thing. I'm like, why is is why, why does it just have such a horrible filter on the film the whole time? It's my just, wife commented it, 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 on this, and my wife, who is not a film buff like we were, at, like halfway through it, she's like, why does everything look like poop? And it's like it's because because that is that is the that is the film itself. It is the it, it is a very poop film. And then everything. Go ahead, Paul. Sorry, I was going to say, like, maybe it hops back to something you said, Anton, about when you put all the colors together, you end up just with brown. (laughs) That's a really good one. That was Fincher's intention, I'm I'm sure. That's a good one. And then not only the color palette, did you notice that almost every scene is filmed from this super low angle? It's like the camera is constantly pointing up at the characters. It, it, It was unsettling to me after a while. Yeah, it, things felt the the shots felt awkward. I did uh, when you mentioned that Pat uh, uh, a couple of days back. I actually watched for some reason the first half an hour with the, with the sound off, so I could just look at the way it was shot. Oh, good and idea! I think it's, and it was about seventeen minutes before you actually get a, a head shot at, at eye level. Everything before <laughs> all that is shot like. They didn't have a tripod and someone had to sort of, you know, someone very short was filming it. It is quite bizarre, but maybe that's the that was the aesthetic they were kind of looking for to, to unsettle you a little bit. It had to but be it, deliberate. Like it had yeah. to be. Let's talk about the CGI, or I should I say lack of CGI, because contrary to popular belief, there is no CGI used to portray the alien except for the one shot of his head cracking. I read that in the notes and I was just so shocked. I'm like, it just looks so terrible. Then it just just looks terrible in general like there's no excuse why it looks so terrible the close-ups are obviously tom woodruff jr the creature effects supervisor in a suit those look fine but all of the shots of the alien running and in full movement it was a rod puppet that they filmed against a blue screen and then they optically composited it into the live action footage and then they removed the rods by rotoscoping it looks horrific like when I think of an alien, I think it, it shouldn't look like it's scurrying. It looked like it was scurrying away. It didn't even look scary. It just looks stupid. It looked like unfinished effects. Yeah, I think the, the the grading of the effect shots didn't match up with the rest of the shot, so it really stood out. And I think if they'd have done a better job on that, I think it would have your mind would have been tricked a lot more. But it just stood out so much. And I just think the effects in general were pretty poor. I think I think actually one of the the only other CGI effect was you know at the beginning and I think a couple of other scenes there's when they're outdoors and there's these bits of black flying through the air. I think that's I think that was CGI. Yeah, you're right. I could be wrong. You're right. Yep. But that looked awful. Again, that looked like it'd been <laughs> put over the top and went, hey, let's just have something flying through the air. It was really really poor. It's not CGI, but it it has that same clunky look that a lot of early cgi has like mm. so, some of the shots to me even look like stop motion that's that's how much it like did not fit into the rest of the frame right and 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 despite the very poor alien portrayal the film did have one of the most iconic scenes of course with the close-up intimate shot right between yeah. the alien and ripley it, it did Th- those effects oh, yeah. were fine the, the close-ups of the alien like the, the the suit stuff that was all fine right it was a very sweaty scene and, you know, Anton, we have made a conscious decision when reviewing older films to, to, to grade these things on a curve because a lot, of, a lot of older films, they do look dated, but it's a question of, okay, well, how did it look compared to its contemporaries? 
But this right. looked bad for 1992 because if you read a lot of the contemporary reviews of this film, the special effects are heavily criticized. This is no small nit to pick. Somehow it was nominated for an Oscar for visual effects. I guess there just weren't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of competition for it that year because it just, it just looks like crap. I'm sure the studio must have added a few pockets to get the nomination. I was going to say, the other thing, uh, when you, if you look at the first opening scene when the lifeboat goes out into space and then starts to land, right? It's clearly a model. And it's clearly shot at a very tight uh, aperture. So it looks like a model. Now, the only comparison I have of that, I, I sort of looked at, I remember the film Meteor. Do you remember that one with Sean Connery with the, the Meteor? And they have to uh, persuade the USSR and the US to point the missiles in space towards the Meteor. Well, look at the effects on that and compare it to that opening scene. And that film was some, you know, six, seven years earlier than that. And was it the same quality? I just, it, it was really poor. And it just stands out. That's the thing for me. It was like, I, I couldn't necessarily enjoy it because it just seemed like, okay, they've just filmed a little old model very badly and projected it and composited it over the back of a picture of a planet. There's even a shot. In the, in the very beginning, when the acid drips on the floor, it's it's like clearly styrofoam. I, I just laughed out loud the last time I was watching it. And that's just so sad to me because it's fine if they use styrofoam. It just shouldn't look like styrofoam, right? right? Of course. Yeah. It's, uh, again, uh, this is the last time I'll say it. Same, same budget as Jurassic Park. Dude, yeah, it's just so disappointing. It's baffling. Yeah. Whatever you whatever you blame for this movie, it's not money. It wasn't a lack of money. No. And speaking of lack of money, been. you go back and look at the budget for Aliens. I think it was seventeen million. You know, there's a couple of effect shots in Aliens that look dated, but overall, it holds up really well. Same with the first film. Both of those films have aged like wine, and this is just like milk. <laughs> what I found interesting, if we're talking about the specifically about the I don't know whether are you gonna are you gonna touch on the music for this for this film, Pat? it's actually one of the things I, I did not mind about it. I thought it was pretty effective by Elliot Goldenthal. Pretty effective music. Yeah, I just uh the only thing I'd say was just, you know, when you listen to the beginning of Alien and Aliens, a very distinctive soundtrack. And with Aliens I didn't think it stood out as much. Maybe because they needed to do that sequence where they take out the two characters i don't know but with the first two you had that very slow sort of shots of space and everything else and then the amazing logo of alien and aliens in their own styles whereas this one was quite forgettable music and they just splattered up alien 3 and that was it there was no style to it or anything Actually, uh, that, that was something that I was also thinking about comparing the first film and how they intro that compared to Alien 3. And I, I just think it's just studio perception of audience attention spans because what the original Alien, that opening and how they display the title card over the course of like what felt like three, two, three minutes. It's iconic. It's very like it's it's very brooding. It builds tension. It's like if you feel the vastness, but then like Alien Three just felt like oh, it's the '90s. Like let's just throw a bunch of stuff on the uh, on the title and we'll we'll keep this thing moving. Well, the first film is Jerry Goldsmith. I mean, he's one of the all time legendary film composers, and of course, the second film, James Horner, another legend. 
May I seems like I'm more forgiving of the score here than you two. I I didn't mind. Well, it. I mean it. I I think that uh, there's always a fine line for film scores. You don't want it to be distracting from the film itself, but you want it to also do its job and like help uh, support the help stand up the universe and the film and this and this and what you're seeing on the screen. I do want to give a shout out though for uh, Golden Fall. In that, listeners, if you're if you were curious, he also did the score for the film Final Fantasy: The Spirits Within. Oh, did he? Yes. Okay. Yeah, he's done some interesting work. He did a couple of the Batman movies. Uh, sort of oh, an underappreciated yeah. composer. He also did Heat. Shout out to Heat. A Time to Kill. Yeah, he he worked a lot with uh, Joel Schumacher, who who of course did the two Batman movies that uh, Golden Ball scored. Who also directed A Time to Kill. (laughs) Yes, he did. John Grisham. Oh, actually, really quick for our listeners. um, You're going to see a little um, change in the lineup for this season. We are removing one of the films that we were going to cover, and we will be replacing it with a John Grisham adaptation. We won't tell you what it is yet, though. Right. Isn't that a little fun teaser? Yeah. We're switching it up, Paul. Hey, loving it. Anything to add before we wrap this up? Not much. This is the part then <laughs> where uh, we render our verdicts. Oh, you have something, Paul? Or? Uh, no, no. I, I, I feel I've vented my spleen now. Thank you. I mean, I, I do I do have a question for you, Paul. Uh, you had probably the best uh, intro to what this film meant to you that of what we'd asked any guests, really. Uh, and I, I'm curious... Was it a cathartic experience talking through this film? Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think over time you think, was I too judgmental because my expectations were so high and I just walked out of that cinema and went, this sucks. I never wanted to see another Alien film ever again. What are they doing to this? To, to sort of try and to sort of see it in a compassionate way. And I think, you know, I've tried to look at things what I I sort of liked about the film as much as what I didn't like and try to understand. And I think now you guys have run through the production challenges and the rewrites and then not having a finished script and things like this. I think given the best will in the world, this is probably the best they could have done. It's just, just so disappointing and it'll always be a disappointment to me, but I think it probably will be another 20 years before I watch it again. But yeah, it was helpful. All right. Well, you heard it here, folks. If you need a supplemental therapy session, just come on the podcast. (laughs) Oh, of course. So, Paul, I mean, you know, what would you rate this? Originally, I was like, this is this is a fail. But there are some there are some redeeming features. And Anton, you talked about, you know, the, the the shot of the alien and Ripley with the shaven head. There was, you know, the bit with her and Charles Dance, I thought. Sigourney Weaver acted it really well. I think there was a lot of interesting stuff in there. So do you want me to grade it? Yeah, please do. Okay. I, I would say it's an E with a uh, could try harder. <laughs> so you're like, you're saying below D minus. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. It's like you did this on a Sunday night when you realized it had to be done by Monday morning. It is, it is really bad. And we, we've talked about this before, and I think that I would originally have given it an F, but Resurrection was so bad that I just have to put that in my frame of mind. So for me, this is a very solid D-. 
I I very much want to give this an F. I hate this movie. It's boring and it's shitty. It's it's depressing. I think James Cameron was spot on when he realized it was impossible to one up the first one, so he switched genres. And the payoff is one of the best sequels ever. And Paul, you you said it in the very beginning of all the new elements that he brought to that story. Alien Three does nothing that we haven't seen before, and I really like what Roger Ebert has to say about it. He says, quote, this is one of the best looking bad movies I have ever seen. It is a triumph of art direction and a disaster of screenwriting. And the eyes appreciate it more than the mind. Watching it in the moment, we are absorbed. After it's over, we are disappointed because what actually happens in the movie is so much less interesting than where it happens and how it looks while it's happening, end quote. The only part of that I will disagree with is that he says this is one of the best-looking bad movies. Uh, I don't think this movie has aged well at all visually. Um, there are only two good Alien movies. This one was never going to be as good as the first two, but it never should have been as bad as it was. This is the, the result of just bad decision after bad decision. They waited way too long to make it. They rewrote it way too many times without even actually finishing the script. They hired and fired too many people. They made poor character choices. They settled for lousy special effects. They constantly undermined David Fincher by not backing him. And it's a failed sequel to a film that already had a definitive ending. The storytelling choices alone make it a bad film. It's bad. The only reason I am not going to give it an F is because I at least respect the boldness of what they were trying to do. And I do think Sigourney's Sigourney Weaver gave a great performance. Uh, it's a D minus, just like you, Anton. It's like this is a terrible film for, to me, and one of the most disappointing sequels ever made. Ultimately, what do I want in in not just any sequel, but any movie? I, I'm a story guy. I want a good story with interesting characters. And at this most basic level, Alien Three is a complete failure. Yeah, I think. I'm starting to learn more. Like I do love a good story. I think story is so key. I think characters are so key. I think intention is so important now. And like having looked at a, a lot of different films, I think a story, a, a movie that's really trying to tell a story and really being very intentional with what they do and put out something complete. It seems like it's rare. Well, I mean, Paul, you asked earlier, like, oh, and sometimes you wonder, like, am I being too critical? What I would say to that is with so many movies and how much time you sometimes have to dedicate to having movies, don't ever have low standards. Have high standards. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I always say it doesn't help that when when you see so many movies, it's I, th I think it's more of a challenge to be thrilled and be in awe and be excited because some things you just see over and over again. So it's harder for me to be, you know, awed by films. So I do tend to be a bit more cynical and I try not to be. And there's certain films that come out and I just, you know, I feel emotion. But the these kind of franchise fillers just just leave me cold. And, 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 it's, and it's just sad that, that these type of films get made. And especially given the cast i know pat you you didn't particularly like the, the the standard of acting but you know all those guys that in that film are stage a lot of them are stage actors fantastic you know when i see them on british tv series and stuff they are fantastic and it just seems such a shame to waste that talent 
and not give them the time and opportunity to present that skill in a, such a lame old story. Yeah, it's it's look, it was they were not given great material to work with. That's that's that much is clear. But uh, Anton, so are we gonna have to cover Alien Resurrection? Because I I really don't want to have to rewatch that. I think for the good of the pod, we we eventually will. But I think I'm good off of the Alien franchise for a little bit. <laughs> we're so definitely we'll... gonna do Prometheus. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say that that would definitely make more sense than to, because I think with resurrection you kind of already anticipated that it was going to be poor yeah once once i found out that uh sigourney weaver was in it because she was a uh her character was cloned like you just know like well that's that's gonna suck it was horror amelie in space that's right jean-pierre Junet. paul did you like prometheus no no i i I, no that's that's i'm coming across so cynical i'm not I didn't think it was a film that needed to be made. Simple as that. I I, yeah. I wasn't interested in personally. I just wasn't interested to know the the backstory of the the space jockey. It was like immaterial to me. The story was about the alien and the people trying to survive around it. That that's made fine. To spin another story out of it. Ah oh well, you know, if people want to know the lore of that. Great. Per- I was excited for it because before that. There were so many failed attempts at the Alien versus Predator series, and I felt like this was maybe a return to form. And it lo- the trailer really hyped it up, and then it just wasn't because they didn't even all. tell the origin of that space jockey. They're like, "Oh, it's not. No. That. It looks a lot like that one, but it's not that one." <laughs> yeah, I'm anyway, with you, Anton. That's I, for- I actually was excited for that movie. That's a future. That's a future episode. And it's coming up, maybe next season. That is uh that is it for Alien Three. Paul, thank you so much for joining us to discuss yes, this war you. crime of a film. Well, no, shout out to you guys for inviting me. I feel like a huge weight has been lifted <laughs> from me. I can move on with my life uh, well, knowing that I've gone through this. So uh send me your invoice. The check will well, be in the mail. Happy to have you here and in the the mortal words of uh, Tony Soprano, therapy. It's like taking a shit. <laughs> well, Anton, so the next week, the plan is to cover Spider-Man 3. Man. That will be like that therapy is, for me, for sure. That is a lot. Paul, I don't know if you're a Spider-Man fan, but I was um, more than psyched for that movie back in 2007. And- I, I remember the first one coming out, and I was just like blown away. I thought it was a brilliant film. Is it Sam Remy's? Yep. I, I was like, and the second one was like, yeah, okay. The third one, yeah. You guys have got a tough task. It's a good way to put it. Uh, well, Paul, we'll have to have you back sometime soon. Yes, we will. Well, thank you very much. I can send you a list of uh, potential films and you can pick a couple. Yeah, I feel I could be a lot more positive now. We we definitely try to keep our podcast like, um, like you know, we Anton and I made a conscious decision. We don't want to just sound cynical all the time. I feel like with a film like Alien 3, it's tough. It's hard, but you, you could see we were trying our best to be level-headed. Yeah, we I tried. I should learn something. Yeah, I should learn something from you guys. Ah, I mean, you were, you, were, you were fair with it. Very fair. We'll have to Thank have you. you on for a film that you don't hate. Yeah, that's true. I could try and defend it against yeah. you two guys. That's the one thing we haven't really had yet. We have not had a guest on that really did that disagreed with us. And it's something that uh, Lost World. But if you remember, our our ratings ended up not 
being far apart. Eric gave that film a I B what, minus. I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah I okay. mean, yeah, I see you gave saying. it a C minus, and that, I guess that's fairly far away from a B minus. Uh, Gangs of New York. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> you know, Anton, I don't think I ever told you this before. I was, I think I was being generous when I gave it a C minus. It's a great film. Can't change my mind. Ugh. Yeah. Sorry, Anton. I'm, I'm of the side that just looks at it and just thinks, why, why? House. Yes. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> but, but anyway, yeah, Paul. I'll have a look at that list and see if I can defend yeah. one of them against you two. Yeah. I'll uh well all right, Anton and I will coordinate then. We'll we'll try to pick one yeah. that we both maybe dislike and uh, we'll go from there. That's it for this week's edition of uh Why Wasn't Better. If you like what you hear, please give us a follow below. See you next week. Later, folks. Cheers, everyone. Thank you.